every system fails. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing you, you also want to understand. It's like the minute you marry yourself to a system, you have just you have just capped your your capabilities. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. Huge, gigantic week coming up. So it is birthday week. We got a big show on Thursday, big party. I got people coming in from all over the place, uh, from out of town. They're going to, we're going to have a big crowd staying here at Casa de Hartman. So I'm really looking forward to that. But we will continue with our process and we will have today's Q&A. And today's Q&A is with Vic. And Vic is actually going to be an attendee to the Intensive 12. And so um, I also talked to Vic a little bit on IFAS University. And we've talked to him before a little bit. But Vic came back with a, a really cool question. Um, a little bit a little bit different than, than what we typically talk about. But it's, it's more towards the mentorship side of things. Um, and... Uh, I think you'll, you'll, you'll find it valuable because <clears throat> we covered when to even seek out assistance or a mentor. Um, let me see. We got uh, a couple notes here. Um, negative influences of belief systems. <clears throat> systems are, are, are potentially useful, but all systems will eventually fail. So you got to keep that in mind. How to formulate a question using analogy uh, to learn new information. The limitations of explicit information versus the, the tacit knowledge—that's a—that's a huge one because I think people think that uh, just because they can regurgitate information, they actually know something, and then they're providing value when actually there is zero value when everybody has access to the same information. So, um, I hope you will find this useful. Um, if you are interested in participating in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman.gmail.com, put 15-minute consult in the subject line, and we'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Uh, don't forget, uh, all these videos are up on the YouTube channel, so go to the YouTube channel and subscribe, please. Um, make, make use of that. Everybody have a terrific Monday, and we will see you tomorrow. We are recording and clock has started. Vic, what is your question? So my question kind of uh, is in the same vein as our last talk where we kind of talked about the value of mentorship and when when that may be maximized and when to seek, you know, so other, other avenues. And so thinking about that same process, uh, my question was uh, when you're trying to learn something and we talked about the value of struggle, when what's a, a system in place or a heuristic you use to say okay you know this is the time value is greater than what i'm putting in or maybe what i'm getting out of that that learning process and maybe it's a time to seek out help or seek expertise from somewhere else because i know i don't know it was within the past year i know you had post posted something where you were asking someone for um help regarding like quantum some quantum physics or something like that. And you saw it. And so I was like, okay, you know, what, what made you decide that, that process and what, what kind of goes into your thought process with that, um, with that question of when to seek help outside help. So, so when to seek help is actually kind of an easy one because at some point in time, you're not going to be able to answer the questions all by yourself. Um, It's important though, that you make the attempt first. Because in many cases, and, and because of the prolific nature of information and the, the instantaneous access, um, a lot of these questions can be 
um, uh, answered um, in some way, shape, or form. Because again, like I said, information is essentially free. Everything is available. What what you run into though is because you may not have the vocabulary, so to speak, to understand everything. That you might need some expertise in someone that can that can explain it to you in some language that you may be familiar with. And so that's when I see, so I have a, I have a, I have a, a, a friend that, that like, he's got a background in, in astrophysics. So that's great. You know, I just yeah. like, Hey, I got a question. And he's like, Oh, and then he, he dumbs it down for me. So we talk about like, when we talk about curved space time and things like that, he, he uses free throws as an example, which is like this, this brilliant uh, analogy. It's important that, that you do establish um, your own understanding first, so you have a comparison. So you're not not flying in in blindly because we we tend to learn things by analogy. And so if if I can uh, acquire new information or a, a different understanding, I I because of the effort that I put in beforehand, I have that comparator. And so now I can say, okay, so here's where I was. Here's the distance that we that we had to. To cover, this is the actual representation. Now I can see where it comes from, or uh, um, it, it just gets me further towards um, some way that I can understand something that might even be a little beyond my grasp. So the struggle, the struggle is important. Like I said, yeah. because number one, there's a, there's got to be an emotional attachment to anything that you learn; otherwise, you won't retain it. It's it's sort of like when you were in school and and they club you over the head with gross anatomy. And physiology, and they say, "Okay, just spit this back out on the test," and yeah. you and you do pretty well. And then it's then it's like you go out into the clinicals, <clears throat> and then you have a a CI that goes, "Oh, well, where's the, the the tibialis posterior attached?" And you're going to go, "Well, it's kind of in this area, and it kind of does this," because it just wasn't meaningful to you when when yeah. when you were first exposed to that. And it was basically, like I said, just spit it on the test. Whereas now through the discussions that we've had and the interactions on IFASTU and, and all of the calls and things. And now you start to see, oh, when you do these things in context, it's a totally different representation. You, you, you make it more meaningful. And then the retention is just that much easier because now it's like, they're, they're, like I said, there's an emotional attachment to it. It's like you have a reason for, for retaining that information. As far as deciding on when to move on, that's always an, an interesting question because I think that that there's there's definitely two perspectives. So you've got the, the mentor and the mentee that both influence the relationship. And there's points in time where the mentor has a pretty clear uh, perspective that, okay, this it's time for you to you know leave the nest and and move on and, and go seek something else like they 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 understand it's like i have topped out i've given you everything that i can it's now up to you to evolve this and then there's also the mentee's perspective that that says i i i've had my fill and i want to do something else and so i don't think there's one way ever to, to do this. And then I think that that's a discussion that you have too, um, because there's there's been a lot of bad representations of in history of, of mentor and mentee relationships where you know it eventually turns into butting heads. At that point, I think that, that it's pretty clear that it's probably time for somebody to move on. 
because you, yeah. you never want you never wanted to to degenerate into that kind of a situation. That there's no there's no reason for it because the the whole premise of that relationship in the in the first place was for both people to get better, mm-hmm. right? And and if it turns into a conflict like that, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Like, like the mentor should never be insulted when the mentee moves on. It's like, okay, that's entirely up to you. And then the mentee shouldn't be, shouldn't be hurt when the mentor says it's time for you to go. Time. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Because again, there, there's emotional investment on, on both sides. So I understand being human and, and the emotions involved in it, but, but there should also be the understanding that like, this is not a forever relationship. This is not, this is not a husband and a wife situation, right? It is, yeah. is, when we reach a point where we feel like we, you know, we, we're we're in the land of diminishing returns, mm-hmm. then it's probably time for us to seek other information. Because the more filters you have, the better you're going to be. Because because again, m- most people they get stuck in a system, and the system fails. Every system fails, mm-hmm. and that's the thing you you also want to understand. It's like the minute you marry yourself to a system, you have just you have just capped your your capabilities and you don't yeah. want to do that you don't ever want yeah to growing yeah and that was that's kind of the crux of my question was that like when do you like say for example the the anatomy and that's kind of where this was born from where okay we're i'm trying to you said formulate a question and then try to answer that question so Absolutely. obviously you've done you've gone through this process and when were you you know i'm trying to figure out okay keep swimming each time that I try to answer this question, I learn more and more and more. And it seems like there's not really any point where I say, okay, let me pull back because maybe my foundation is not there yet to kind of build and say, oh, my question isn't specific enough that it's, it's broad and my, I'm building that. Right. And so when you were kind of coming up with your model and you're, you were posing these questions to yourself and answering, when did you say, okay, let me, even if it's like a, a, a book or, or maybe I'm going to go to Google and try to get, or when do I, when, you know, it, it, for my example, when do I ask Bill and say, is this the right one? Or, you know, is this the iteration that, that we're looking for? Mm-hmm. Or do I just keep kind of, you know, chipping away at answering that question, answering that question because there's value in that. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, spending like, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, you know, on one question is that, and what, when you ran into that, what did you, what did you do? Did you just keep going or, you know, you said Google and then kind of, you know, make a cut from there and kind of go, you're still in the same path, but maybe, you know, different trajectory. Well, so let's, let's go back to the, to the beginning of of this, this portion of the question is, okay, did you ask the right question? And so number one, you, you accumulate information you try to capture an understanding and then you apply. So, so this is this is one of the mistakes that, that people make is they think that that the answer is strictly in the information. Like they because people say, where can I get a book on understanding more about compression expansion? It's like, well, hey, pick up the physics book first and understand what it really means. And then then you got to go anatomy and you got to say, well, what are the constraints, et cetera, et cetera. And then and then you got to either go into the gym or you go into the clinic or, or whatever your, your environment is and you start to apply it because that's where the, the true question is going to be answered because that's real life. And now you have a situation where 
the things that cannot be expressed in a textbook or on a video or in a blog or whatever it is, that's, that's the experiential element that is essential, especially for what we do when you're interacting with other humans because it's unpredictable, it's complex, and you don't know what the answers are going to be. And so, so what the experience then does as you apply and you go, ooh, that didn't work. And, and the information that I've, that I've accumulated says that, that you know, it's a possibility, but now I know what the other possibilities are. And so this is, this is what we call the tacit knowledge. So, mm -hmm. so this is the stuff, if you've ever tried to explain something to someone that you, you, you feel like you've got a terrific grasp on it, but the words just don't make any sense when they come out of your mouth, that's the tacit. That's like, I have this understanding. I want to show you or I want to teach you. But the only way that you can do this is to actually execute it, right? Mm -hmm. It's like um, you could talk about, you could explain what a back squat is to someone, right, in great detail. And then they have to go try to execute it off of that. And it's a totally different world once you're under the bar, right? That's, that's the things that you could not express. You couldn't say, here's what it feels like to have the bar on your back. Here's where your foot position is. And then as you descend, you're going to do this. You're going to do that. It's like, you can't tell anybody that. You, you have to experience that. But what, what the experience does, those are your safe to fail experiments. This is where you actually test your knowledge and test your understanding. And then you see what the possibilities are. And in many cases, this helps you formulate a better question. And now you can start the process all over. So it's this just this continuous loop of, of question, test, outcome, okay? Based on this, what is the next step? So, so you're always, mm -hmm. hopefully, hopefully refining. always refining and, and evolving your like I, I i can i can assure you so i don't know if everybody knows this but, but you're coming to the next intensive and so i can assure you with great confidence that that your intensive is going to be totally different than the previous 11 because there's different people in the room and the model has evolved a great deal since the last one because it's always changing because we because everything is refined Everybody thinks that there's one answer and it's like, no, we just keep getting better and we, we draw it through more filters and we have a better process and we've had another, so, so I've had another year of, of teaching, talking, answering questions. Why do you think I do this, Vic? To get, get more data, get better questions, different questions, different perspectives. Me every yeah. time, every time I could I could be asked the same question six different times. And because I'm talking to a different person, the answer is going to be a little bit different. Yeah. And again, that helps me. It helps everything in regards to 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 modeling what is arguably something that we'll never fully understand. Yeah, and that's why I've kind of that was I take the same approach on the IFSU page where I try to, you know put information out there and just kind of see yeah. what discussion develops because then you learn so much more. And Absolutely. I, now why, I'm, why do I answer questions with questions? <laughs> to make, right. make people think, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it, it, to, make it, to make it hard. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I can tell you stuff. I can tell you stuff and then you just go, eh. But, yeah. if, but, it, but if I challenge you to, to, to look from another perspective or to, like I said, capture another piece of information, um, that, then it helps you. Right. Yeah. It's not about yeah. spit again, like just spitting out stuff on a piece mm -hmm. of paper. Anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. Yeah. And I think that's the, I think the key to what you said that I, uh, the perspective that brought it all together was that 
just that application of the scientific process instead of looking externally to, towards information in books or just applying that and kind of using your own process to answer the question as opposed to saying that maybe this there's a definitive answer in a book that I can get to answer my exact question, whereas that might not be the case. And that's how, what I feel like you, I'm... How can you have a definitive answer in, in a complex domain where multiple outcomes are possible, yeah. right? So, in a, and you've heard me talk about this before where I talk about the probabilities of success, yeah. right? You, it could be 82 in favor of you and, and 18 against, and you land in the against because that was a possibility. It could be a 0.05% chance that something's gonna happen and it does, yeah. right? Because it's still possible. And, so, and that, that's a bitter pill for people to swallow because in school, they give you yes, no answers. Mm -hmm. And it was very black and white. This is this, this is that, right? Because it's uncomfortable to think that, oh, um, if, if your instructor was saying in front of the class, go, um, by the way, you're never really gonna know what's gonna happen until it does. And then all of a sudden, yeah. ooh, you know? <clears throat> for the, the multiple muscles, that's what I was like, oh you know i've just yeah but but i've studied and like you said within the context of just because the emotional attachment and the the want the desire to learn i've studied or i've kind of retained a lot more of the anatomy than i ever did kind of in pt school because it was just that regurgitation here memorize this and then right. apply so, but and but you're but you're applying it in context and that's what yeah. that's what makes it meaningful and you're seeking it out this time instead of being said here's what i want you to know yeah, I'm answering a question with that. Trying to answer right. a question with that. As yeah, that's why, okay. I, that's, why, that's why I don't lecture. I talk, but I don't lecture because that, of what value is it? It's like, I'm, I'm standing up in front of somebody and saying, this is, this is what you need to know. And everybody's sitting there go, oh, good, feed me, feed me. And it's like, yeah. one, it's not fun. It's not enjoyable at all, right? It's much better to have a discussion and, and get everyone else's perspective because it, like I said, it helps everybody under those circumstances, which is why you're going to get really, really uncomfortable in a very tiny room with a lot of people jammed into it. Sounds like fun. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I got it. All right. Paul. All Thanks. right. Appreciate it. All right. Have a great day. All right. You too. Bye. Right. So this is why, this is why we talk about spaces and not, not planes because those planes do not exist. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. And the crazy week continues. Uh, got extended family ruling in as of today. So it's going to get busy around Casa de Hartman. Um, got a regular clinic schedule. So again, very, very busy. So let's dig into today's Q&A. Um, I had a conversation with Jack and um, Jack did a great job of asking questions in regard to some foundational elements that, um, especially the people that are first being exposed to my model, um, need, to, need to sort of grasp and understand. And um, so we talked about yielding and overcoming actions and how that influences um, behavior during, during walking. We talked about uh, the shape of the skeleton, superficial compressive strategies, how that influences movement outcomes, um, force production in regards to relative uh, movement and, and orientation. Let me see, I got a couple notes here. Um, oh, how ER and IR demonstrate in the split squat. Always interesting to, to talk about those because we have compensatory strategies that we need to be able to identify in the gym. And then um, 
how context determines whether ER and IR are demonstrated. Some people tend to think it's like an either or thing and that comes from probably from a dead guy anatomy representation where everybody thinks that there's like this zero point that, that is straight up when the reality is is that ER and IR always superimposed. Which one is demonstrated is gonna be context dependent. So again, really good series of questions from Jack. So Jack, I appreciate you um, very much. If you would like to participate in a 15 minute consultation, um, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, put 15 minute consultation in the subject line and we'll arrange that our mutual convenience. Don't forget that if you're looking for some foundational information in regards to my model, please go to my YouTube channel and subscribe there because there is a bunch of stuff that goes way back a couple years, in fact, and so you can actually see some of the evolution that has taken place in the model itself. Have an outstanding Tuesday. I will see you guys tomorrow. Recording and timer has started. Jack, what is your question? All right, so I understand gate is just a series of alternating turns of the axial skeleton, correct? Generally speaking, yes. I mean, that yes, it's turning, sure. So, and you represent them with uh, phases of propulsion, right? Correct. So just to clarify, so say you have right leg swinging forward. So the sacrum will begin to turn to the left, right? Uh, it depends on where we are, but yeah, that would be the general, the general so principle is that we're gonna turn it that way, yes. It begins turning that way, right? As yeah. the leg swings through. Yeah, so so if I'm if I'm gonna if I'm gonna move the right leg forward, I have to be able to turn the sacrum to the left to, to get that leg out in front of me. Yes. Okay. Okay. So then once you begin to enter stance phase, which is early propulsion as you represent it, right? Correct. That's then that right side will begin to yield. Right, it has to slow. So, so when the foot hits the ground, the leg is no longer moving forward, but everything else is. And so right. I have to slow that side of the axial skeleton down so that I can begin to try to advance the other side. So yes, so, so what, what a yield is, is the delay strategy on that side. Got it. And then the left begins in overcoming strategy, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like so I said, all we're doing is, all we're doing is turning yeah. the sacrum from side to side. Yeah. yeah, so that's that's why I kind of view it as like a serious alternating turn. So I see it like yeah. yielding, 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 yielding. And then once that other side catches up, then the other side has to overcome, right? Correct. Okay. So now I'm curious of how, so I understand people become stuck in like these phases of propulsion. They can have the potential to. And so I was wondering how you would test for this to see whether the left or right side is stuck in early or late propulsion. Well, it would be represented by, so depending on what environment that you work in. So, so people come to see me, they have painful conditions. And so in many cases, what we do is we'll measure ranges of motion and that determines the, the, uh, orientations than the shape, if you will, of, of the, of the body. So that that's what creates the representations of, of early versus late. And so certain measures will drop off 
to a more significant degree if somebody's in in a in a late representation of propulsion. So, for instance, if somebody is 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 late on one side, you will tend to see a reduction in early what would be termed as hip flexion. Okay. Right. So early hip flexion disappears. Straight leg raise is effective uh, affected, and then. Um, because of, of the loss of the external rotation measures, I'll experience a loss of internal rotation measures as well. So the later you are in the propulsive phase, the, the less um, you're going to see in those early phases of, of measurements. Okay. And is that because that posterior side is compressed? It is, it is because, yes, the, the, but the reason it's compressed is because you've got a lot of concentric muscle activity in that posterior lower aspect of the of the pelvis that is basically taking away those spaces where those measures would would naturally occur. Right. Yeah. Okay. So now what if you have that posterior lower compressive strategy bilaterally? Is that a byproduct of <clears throat> usually a lot of heavy strength training and stuff like that? High well, so it, it is a learned process. So, so what heavy strength training requires is that you create internal pressure to push upward. So, so if we're using a squat as an example, so what that squat does is it magnifies the downward load on the body. And so if I want to lift it back up, I better be able to squeeze myself harder and harder. The muscles on the outside of the body are the ones that are going to magnify that, that ability to squeeze, create the internal pressure. So I have something that is rigid that I can um, put underneath the load and lift it up, right? So I have to take away ranges of motion. So I'm directing force primarily in one direction because if I have multiple ranges that are available, that dissipates force. And so that's gonna limit how much, how much weight I can lift. So yes, yeah, so strength training will teach you how to do that to whatever degree, right, that, that you, allow that influence to predominate. So if, if you're, <clears throat> you know, one of the extremes. So if, if, if the weightlifting portion is part of your sport, like a powerlifter or an Olympic lifter, you're gonna see that a whole lot more often um, than if somebody was uh, a baseball player. Although it does show up there too, because they are trained and they do produce forces in the same way. It just might be to a lesser degree. Okay. So that's one of those superficial muscle strategies come in is when the need for higher force production, right? Absolutely. When yes. you, you can't, you can't produce force when you have many body parts that are moving simultaneously because the, what, what that does is it distributes the force throughout. So again, when, especially in sport where we see very forceful activities or high velocity activities that follow this high force production, you'll, you'll have these moments in time where the, the body segments move as, as a single segment. And that's the only way that you can produce force. Yeah. And that's the orientation that you talk about, right? Versus it is. So an orientation is a representation of that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's when people begin to lose relative motion of Joints, right? It is absolutely a loss of relative motion because again, you have segments that are moving together. Relative motion is when, is when segments move relative to one another instead of moving together as a single unit. Got it. Okay. So now kind of going back to the gate and phases of propulsion. So 
I've heard you, I've watched your videos and I've heard you talk about how to set up a split squat to bias ER and IR and uh-huh. and femur. So I was curious. So could you kind of walk me through like a right foot forward split squat and what you're biasing and what phases of propulsion you're biasing? Okay. It's going to depend on what, <clears throat> excuse me. It's going to depend on what the goal is because we can manip- manipulate the positions. Okay. All right. Generally speaking, excuse me. <clears throat> Generally speaking at the top of the split squat and depending on loads and things like that. So, so let's take load out of the equation because load is going to immediately restrict relative motions. So we're just talking about somebody that has a fair level of force production. And so body weight's not the strongest of influences, right? And we're just going to run them through a split squat. Your, your ER representation is going to be uh, demonstrated at, at the top of the split squat. So I've got one leg in front, I've got one leg back. Generally speaking, that's going to be a bias towards external rotation. Now, both feet are on the ground. So there is an element of internal rotation already superimposed. How you do that is going to depend on who you are and then what kind of a strategy you bring to the table. But, but generally speaking, generally speaking, the bias at the top of the split squat is going to be external rotation. I can make, I can make that lead leg um, a, a, a late representation by, by orientation, or I can bias it towards early by creating a delay strategy on that front side. And there's any number of ways to do that from, from simply turning the sacrum towards the lead leg, or I can unweight it and turn the sacrum towards the lead leg. So again, I can create any bias that you want from there. As you descend into the split squat, generally speaking, you're going to move towards internal rotation if you have the capabilities to do so, right? So, so again, grossly speaking, ER at the top, IR at the bottom, but now we have to talk about how did you wanna bias the activity to achieve whatever intention you had? And then who are we talking about and what strategies do they have? Do they even have the capability to capture the internal rotation at the bottom? And if not, then we're going to see some form of compensatory strategy. So these are the people that you see with the uneven pelvises, or you see the knee deviate away from midline and things like that, because they're trying to do this thing in in an ER representation rather than IR representation, which means that they have to create a space of ER, then they superimpose some kind of an IR strategy on top of it, knowing full well that IR is down, ER is up. Okay. So when so there's that moment of ir that you have to create during the split squat to push back up right yes sir absolutely so during that moment does that affect the strategy on the posterior side like the uh, yielding or overcoming strategy on that posterior side it it may it may and again it's like one we have to have we have to have an observation of sorts. We have to say, okay, this is what you this is what you did under those circumstances, and so this is this is the strategy that you used. Okay. And so each yeah. one of those has a representation that we would identify. And again, in the gym, we can do we can do this visually to a degree. We don't have to throw people on the table to identify these things. We just have to understand what's going on. Okay. Uh, all right, I'm gonna kind of move to the upper body a little bit. Um, okay. You have four minutes. Okay. Just, then, just well, to plan accordingly. All right. So I've heard you talk about how end range shoulder flexion is a measure of dorsal rostral expansion. 
Right. Okay. It's that's going to be context dependent. That's okay. That's what I figured. Cause I've, so I'm, can I finish my question quick? Absolutely. So you have the, I've heard you mention it's a component of dorsal, dorsal rostral expansion. And then I've also heard you utilizing it as a technique of compression, dorsal rostral compression on that side. So right. like using it as an element of compression to expand the other side. So I'm kind of curious of, yeah, in what context is. Okay, so if I'm looking just at, at acquisition of, of motion, so to acquire the space. So here's the problem is that is that flexion is associated with an imaginary sagittal plane that does not exist. The space that you put the arm overhead does exist, okay? So what you're trying to do is you're trying to access that space, right? Depending on load strategies, depending on what the axial skeleton is capable of doing, so, so again, my physical structure determines how I'm going to get my arm into that space. And so under certain circumstances, so if higher force production is required, so if I put a heavy kettlebell in your hand and I say, put it in that space, I got news for you. It ain't going to be external rotation because I need force production, which is IR. And so you're going to have an IR strategy to create that, which means you're going to get dorsal rostral compression. But I can assure you with great confidence that it's not going to be the same representation that if you were laying on a treatment table and we were trying to measure shoulder flexion, which would require dorsal rostral expansion and an ER representation to, to capture that space. They are two totally different animals, right? So this is why, this is why we talk about spaces and not, not planes because those planes do not exist. Those planes exist for us to have a conversation to talk about points in space and that's it. It's not how we move. We don't move in, we don't ever move in straight planes. So, so I'm an undergrad in exercise science. So sorry to hear that. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It's your foundation. Always remember that it's a foundation that you build upon. It's an analogy for you to make comparisons with. So, so there's value there. There's value, but just understand that there's more than one filter. For sure. But yeah, I found your videos and after finding them, I kind of lost all motivation. Of, but <laughs> I'm sorry. That's not what I'm trying to do. <laughs> sorry, you're guiding me in a better perspective of this kind of stuff. And so, well, better's better's your judgment. Um, it, I, I'm just hoping to be useful. Yeah, you know. No, but, um, yeah. It's, do I have any more time? Or yeah, you have you have a minute and four seconds, three seconds, two seconds. Go go, Jack. Go. Me about a flat thoracic spine and a narrow versus a wide. Say again. Flat, flat thoracic spine and a narrow versus a wide. Uh-huh. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that or how it come about? So, so if you're going to say flat, let's just say that we've got dorsal rostral compression. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. Doesn't matter which archetype you're talking about, the dorsal rostral compression occurs for the same reason because it is superficial strategy. So it is, it is outside the, the, the direct representation of either archetype. So both have superficial musculature, both will use it for the same, for the same reason. It just might happen at a different time because of the sequencing that is associated 
with the uh, with the archetypes themselves. So so they have very specific strategies that are associated with their structures. Because if we if we looked at the two extremes, like the extreme wide and the extreme narrow, they hold their position in space by by two different strategies. So you've heard me probably if you've seen my videos, you know that I talk about two strategies in one plane, right? So the strategy is expansion or compression, and but for us to maintain our position, eventually everybody will move towards compressing to hold position in space, right? Especially at the extremes, because what we're trying to do is we're trying to make, re remain upright on two legs against gravity. And everybody thinks that's an easy thing because you've been walking around since you were one year old, but reality is it's, it's, a, it's a continuous circus act. It is very, very difficult. So difficult that we are the only animals on earth that do it to any reasonable degree um, of, of success. Um, so again, it doesn't really matter which archetype you're talking about. What I would what I would do is I would go back. There's a couple of videos where I talk about the the progression of the superficial strategies. And so what you probably want to do there <clears throat> is just distinguish as to when that representation would be demonstrated um, based on the two archetypes. Cool. Oh, you cut out on me, Jack. I can't hear you. Can you hear me now? There we go. I tell you what, brother, we are out of time, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Yep. Okay. I appreciate you. No. All right. You have a great day. You, you too. All right. We'll see you. In something like powerlifting, where I'm gaining more and more capability of applying superficial strategies, their stance tends to start to move out. So if you ever talk to a guy that's been powerlifting for 20 years, you go say, yeah, I used to pull conventional, but, but I'm much stronger in a sumo now. Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have no coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. So today's Wednesday, that means that tomorrow's Thursday, which means per usual at 6 a.m. we will be on the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Um, if you would like to join us, please do so. The link will be on my professional Facebook page. Um, just prior to the call. These calls have been great, so um, you don't want to miss out on that. All right, digging into today's q and It's with Ben, and I've talked to Ben before. A very good human. Came with some really good questions. We talked a little bit about mentorship on, on Monday, and we started off the call by talking a little bit about that as well with Ben. And he asked a really good question as to how, how mentoring has benefited me, because even though it... it seems that the intention is to benefit the mentee. The mentor um, benefits a great deal. So we talked a little bit about that. And then we went right into some technical stuff, which was really cool. So we took the the two uh, wide and narrow ISA archetypes. We looked at some of the some of the differences and similarities in regards to diaphragm position, helical orientation, what the benefits of training with or against the helical orientation. So, so that was actually a really, really good topic uh, to cover. And then a little bit about training age and, and how some of your powerlifting technique may change um, the, the farther you get into into training. And, and obviously, as you make some progress, there's going to be some changes in your physical structure that we need to attend to. So this is a really good call. Thank you, uh, Ben, for your questions. If you would like to join me for a 15-minute consultation, please go to Ask Bill Hartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience. So I will see you tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. for the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Have a terrific Wednesday. I'll see you. We are recording.
timer has started, Ben, fire away. Okay, so you've talked a lot about uh, mentorship and menteeship and its benefits uh, in both directions for the mentor and the mentee. Yep. And, um, you know, I've had a lot of, a lot of mentors, uh, you know, just through the, the years that I've been studying this stuff and learning this stuff. And um, I've had positive experiences. I've had negative experiences. And I think both have been great. Uh, for different reasons. But what I wanted to ask you was, how has your thought process in regards to being a mentor uh, changed over the years? And what does that kind of look like now? And how has it helped you, um, you know, in the rest of this sort of space of, you know, physical therapy and training? <clears throat> well, I, th I think that the, the biggest change is that I get more experience every year every call, every discussion, and every time that I answer a question. I get better at answering the same questions over and over again. And then I get asked questions that I wouldn't think to, to ask myself, which allows me to gain a different perspective. So that's how I evolve. So um, it's kind of funny because I, <clears throat> I had another call this morning that's very similar to, to your initial question as well. And, and it's, it's almost, there, there's this selfishness that, that goes along with, with the mentorships that I do, because I benefit as much as anybody uh, from, the, from the relationship. So my ability to express myself, to express the ideas that I talk about um, have improved dramatically just by doing this. So, so again, as much as I wanna help everybody else, I, I wanna get better too. And so that would be the biggest difference um, is, is that I'm taking full advantage of my ability to communicate with such a broad variety of people, because again, it just, it, it's, it, it's the questions that I wouldn't think to even ask myself, because maybe I think that I already understand it well enough. Or um, one of the hardest things to do is to express things that are based on experience. And so a lot of times the questions that, that a mentee or, or anybody uh, would, would ask helps me clarify information in my head or express it more effectively. You'd be surprised how many, how many questions would come up in an intensive that I've never asked myself, but answering them on the spot just gives these great moments of clarity as to, as to what I really think or what I believe or what I understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. And have there been times where you know, I'm sure there have been times where someone asks you a question and you're just like totally just, you know, stumbling over your words. You don't know what to say. Right. And that can definitely be eye opening. Sure. Um, but maybe maybe I'd like to hear about the last time that that happened, if you or, or just any time that that happened <laughs> and maybe what you what your process was from that point. Well, one of the things that one of the things that that is a value, and I, and I've talked about this, I think, in some of my my sixteen percent videos, is is that what what people do is they tend to ruminate thought in their head, and there's there's tremendous value in expression, like like actually talking out loud, to to express an idea, because when you when it becomes reality, it's a little bit easier to see and to understand. So you either write it down to get it out of your head and make it real, or you express it out loud. So my wife thinks I'm a little bit crazy because I walk around the house talking to myself and all I'm trying to do is figure stuff out because that's how you, that's how you do it. Um, but there are plenty of times where 
I would have to just sit and say, I don't know. The, the, the thing about having a lot of experience is you get to say, I don't know, but, or I don't know, and um, now, and again, in, in opening the discussion in that way, um, it, it allows you to start to draw on other resources, right? Rather than just, just blanketing it with, with, I don't know, I try to solve the problem then and there, just like you would if you were trying to figure something out on your own and you're seeking out resources, um, I'm doing the same thing, right? I, I have to follow the same process because I have to have access to information. I have to have filters just like everybody else does. But when you express it out loud, you sort of have greater access to all of those, all of those filters that you, that you pass information through. And you say, well, how does this, what does it look like? Okay, is there something else that I've had experience with that this looks like? Okay, what happened under that circumstance? Does this apply in the same way? And if it does, how would that happen, right? What are the constraints that I'm working within? So again, just by expressing those, these questions come up and then you start passing it through more filters. It's, it's by far, by far the best way to, to learn something new when you can when you can make that comparison like i said it's one of the reasons why i do a lot of the things that i do from a selfish perspective is that you know that when you teach something you benefit just as much as the as the student does wow, absolutely okay awesome um so i wanted to to switch gears here quickly mm-hmm. um and talk about the two archetypes and the diaphragms relative to each archetype and how that manifests potentially in different strategies specific to powerlifting. So an example would be, you know, do you pull, do you choose to pull sumo? Do you choose to pull conventional based on what you feel more comfortable with? Do you squat high bar? Do you squat low bar? Do you bench wide? Do you bench narrow? Those kinds of things. So um, I just want to make sure my thought process is is correct in terms of the positions of each diaphragm. So both are relatively descended. Is that true? No. Okay. I'd like to start there then. (laughs) (laughs) So let's look at, let's look at two extremes. Okay. All right. Uh, So you have, you have the, uh, like a narrow archetype. So, so they are biased towards an expanded axial skeleton by strategy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's a breath in they're expanded. They need to be able to exhale. Yep. Okay, so if I if I'm going to exhale and I have a descended diaphragm, that's probably bad news, right? Yeah. Okay. So so we have to understand that that they are they are using an exhalation strategy. So 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 why do they close the ISA in the front and and keep it as such? Because that allows that diaphragm to ascend. It moves towards an exhaled strategy. Okay. Yep. Wide ISA is the exact opposite. Okay, so that's somebody that's that is biased towards squeezing and exhaling, and I need to breathe in so I don't suffocate. And so then they're going to actually pull the diaphragm downward into the descended position. Okay. Yeah. So you have to account for that. All right. What we're talking about. Let's be very clear about what we're talking about. We're talking about. Um, the costal portion, okay? Mm-hmm. When we're talking about that diaphragm. Okay. Okay. Mm. We have to be very, very specific. Okay. Because, so, 
there are many pieces and parts. Yeah. So given that we're just talking about the costal diaphragm yeah. in that scenario, yeah. there's a whole other part of the diaphragm that's more posterior. Yes, sir. And so those will respond relative to the position or in relation to the sacrum. So if the wide has the nutated sacrum, right? They have the relatively ascended pelvic floor. Okay. And the. Let's be really specific here. Anterior yeah. outline. Yeah. Anterior yeah. Outline. It's concentric. Just say concentric. Just concentric say anterior pelvic floor. Yes. Yeah. I have a concentric costal diaphragm at the same time. Mm, okay. And then the, the reverse would be true for the narrow external angle. Yes. I have an eccentric orientation of the costal diaphragm. I have an eccentric orientation of the anterior outlet. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Cause people get, people get carried away with the, with the concept of ascension descension. Yeah. And they think that that's the match. The match is the, is the muscle behavior concentric and eccentric is the match. Okay. Yeah. That makes more sense. Yes, it so, does. so given those influences and those positions, how do you think that would play out in a powerlifting setting in a setting where you have in, in a setting where you have an option to move your feet really wide or really narrow, or in a setting where you have your, you know, your grip can be really wide or really narrow. How do you think those two positions relative to the archetypes would have a direct influence on those things? You, so, so number one, okay. So let's just say that we have, we have our foundational archetypes. And so what we want to first talk about is a helical orientation, right? So a wide helical orientation is going to be um, a, a more horizontal representation, okay? And so technically speaking, they're going to be biased towards um, uh, behaviors that are going to be uh, less rotation and more horizontally oriented. So they're going to be your low bar squatter, right? Um, they're going to be biased towards um, a, more of a powerlifting style of a squat, right? Whereas you have a narrow whose helical orientations are more vertical, they're going to be oriented towards a, a narrower stance and a little bit more of an upright torso. Generally speaking, we're speaking generally here. There are there yeah. are exceptions on on every level, okay? Um, but but that that would be your your first step in representation. When you start to apply <clears throat> superficial strategies that are creating anterior posterior compression on both archetypes, what's going to happen is you're going to lose the, the um, naturally occurring ER space that you would have when you have relative motions available. So we're taking away relative motions when we get superficial strategies. So what happens is, is that external rotation moves away from midline. Okay. And so I have a smaller ER space. And so what you'll tend to find is, is that no matter who we're talking about, the longer that they participate in something like powerlifting, where I'm gaining more and more capability of applying superficial strategies, their stance tends to start to move out. So if you ever talk to a guy that's been powerlifting for 20 years, he goes, yeah, I used to pull conventional, but, but I'm much stronger in a sumo now because mm -hmm. But the reason that they're much stronger in a sumo is because they can't even get into a conventional position anymore because they don't have they don't have the skeletal shape anymore that allows them to even access that space, and so so they move out 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 out. 
Okay. So again, what you're talking about more often than not is going to be associated with superficial compression strategies. Okay. Yeah. They're, everybody moves away from, everybody's going to move away from midline because that space doesn't exist anymore. Like there's, there's nothing there. You cannot get there. Right. So regardless of wide or narrow, you're going to end up just Pancaking. Everybody starts to move out. And again, there's going to be those. There's going to be those people that that are exceptional, and they were born to be able to do, to do this stuff. And so they 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 don't change like most people do, right? But they're they're down at the other end of the curve, yep. right? They're the exceptions to the rule. But the but the rule still exists. Like if I compress, I have to move outward. The people that can maintain their their expansion under those circumstances, and they are there. They're superheroes, right? They're there. They don't. They don't lose that space, and so they can access it. So, um, the the guy that pops into my head um, is uh, John Cuke. It's, it's K U C. He's he's an old lifter, like from like a thousand years before you were born. He was like when I was a kid. He was really strong, and and he was a narrow stance, deep, deep squatting power lifter. Had the perfect structure for it and never lost range of motion there and was like ridiculously like he's doing 700 pound squats back in the 80s i believe mm -hmm. you know which was just awesome to see yeah. um <clears throat> so like i said there are those people that that can do that yeah makes total sense and i'm and i'm picturing in my head the people who are exactly like that now because there are some you know high level powerlifters who who represent that pretty strongly yeah yeah and again, as they evolve, as they get as they get better at that activity, right? It's like the goal is to, if you're going to be the, you know, if you want to be a successful powerlifter, like the exception or the, or the ex expectation is that, okay, I need more adaptation, more adaptation, more adaptation. The question mark is, is like, okay, do you understand what ad adaptation we're talking about here, mm -hmm. right? It's more superficial muscle. It's more compression. It's more squeezing. And that means you're going to lose relative motions under most circumstances. Gotcha. Cool. This was very helpful, Bill. Thank you. You're very welcome. Do you have anything else? You got a little bit of time. I do. Yeah. Last, last, last call of the day, dude. Third time. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's luck of the draw. Luck of the draw. All right. We'll, we'll go with that. Um, so I guess my, my follow-up question to that um, initially was in regards to training strategies more from, because I know, you know, you've talked a lot about uh, stance width and, and uh, chopping angles relative to helical orientations and stuff like that. So that all makes sense to me. But if we're taking into account the fact that both of these archetypes ultimately end up in a very similar place, do we just kind of take that idea and not throw it out the window, but at the same time, it's like, if both of these people are, are really, really being smushed, it's like, how significant are the differences at that point? Or is this really just kind of like your N of one situation? It's all, okay. It's always N of one. Let's just, let's just take that aside. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cause, cause you're always going to have that, that, that situation. But the, the thing that you want to think about is, is, is your, your step one for like, let's just say we have two end game representations, one wide, one narrow, mm -hmm. uh, because of the superficial strategies and, and their influences, we have to alleviate that first if relative motion is the goal, right? And again, that's the question, right? It's like, is relative motion the goal, okay? If it's performance related kind of stuff where we're talking about force production, it's like, we just know that we're gonna be kicking on those strategies. We have to use them. Um, but, but step one would be to alleviate 
the, the superficial limitations that are, that are being applied if, if we're trying to restore relative motions, then the helical angles become essential because the greatest excursion in ranges of motion occur on the helical angle. Mm -hmm. So if I train against that, which is what powerlifting is, okay, just so you understand, powerlifting mm -hmm. is training directly against the helical angles. It's like, it's like I'm going to be right in the middle, so to speak. So wherever this is, right, right in the middle is where I'm going to try to try to capture um, the, the, the force production, right? Mm -hmm. And, and so that's when the helical angles become even more important. So under, under many circumstances, we can speak generally in, in the uh, attempt to increase the anterior posterior expansion, because ultimately, like if, if, I su if I superimpose all possible superficial strategies, everybody's using the same ones, right? The, the sequencing that I might use is, might be a little bit different, but ultimately, like I said, the intention is the same. I got to create anterior posterior expansion. Otherwise, I don't have any access to those helical angles. Mm -hmm. right? I got to take those away first. Underneath all those, that's where the helices are represented. Okay. Okay. So right. when, you, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So when you talk about, because I'm picturing whenever I think about narrow versus wide and the helical angles, I think about the tubes or the syringes. That's like what pops Correct. in my head. Correct. So if we're thinking about this, this A to P compression and we're picturing the wider tube versus the narrower tube, what do the tubes end up looking like? At the end? Yeah, at the end. So take a, take a, a toilet paper roll. Okay. And smush it. Just take it between your hands and slowly close it up. Okay. That's it. Right. So, so again, it's like that pressure, that pressure goes directly against the helical orientation. Mm -hmm. So, so again, so instead of having this nice roll that will go back and forth between your hands, you go like this and it turns like this and that's orientation, which means that everything's moving together. So I no longer have the ability. So, so when helices move relative to one another, they twist and they compress and then they open and they expand. That's that's what relative motion looks like. Okay. Mm -hmm. If I squeeze it and I can't, I can't twist it anymore. Now they do this. Mm. So it, uh, we make a little joke. It's like rolling a refrigerator. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yep. <laughs> that gives you that nice little representation. It's yeah. like, literally that's what you've created. You've created two, two flat sides that you're just flipping it over. Okay. Okay. How'd we do? We did. We did great. Awesome. All right, Ben. Appreciate you. Hey, uh, yeah, I understand. <laughs> we already had the running gag of, of what you got in hand, right? Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> All right, man. All Have right. a great day. Thank you, Bill. You too. All right, see you. Like since starting to come on these calls, just like being able to pick and choose like these like traditional exercises that I was just throwing at someone randomly, like now actually having like a reason for them has been really helpful. Shouldn't uh, there be a reason for everything that you do? There definitely should. Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have neuro coffee in hand and oh, ladies and gentlemen, it is perfect. Uh, Zach, I'm really hoping you have a question and you're not going to sing to me. Uh, I don't know how I could possibly follow that up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my question is going to be in regards to like 
core strengthening for low back pain in terms I don't know of what that means at all. Go yeah. ahead. So how it's just like traditionally taught in PT school, like low back pain, the answer for all of it is just all these different core strengthening exercises. Mm -hmm. um, so just wondering if you've thought about that ever through the, like the lens of your model, because one of the things that I think has been interesting to hear you like talk about sometimes um, is how like maybe some of these things that are traditionally taught are useful, but for like a specific type of person um, or presentation through your lens. Um, so do you see any utility in those types of activities um, for a specific presentation or are people just getting better with this sometimes? This I, don't, I don't know what activities you're talking about, boss. Give me like plank, side planks, pal off, just like any generic. So force production? Yeah, just like like isometric, like core activities. Okay, what's, what's an isometric, Grace? <laughs> Doesn't exist. Grace, Grace, Grace had an epiphany on, on Monday at, at the gym in regards to muscle contractions. Um, so I'm picking on her a little bit. Um, whoa, somebody, somebody needs to mute there. Um, you, you're, you're offering up a very vague representation of something that, that's not very helpful. So um, let me grab my anatomy book. Okay, and then I'm going to grab it. I'm going to go to the section on the core. And then let, let me catch up to you because I'm not really sure what that is. So, so step one, step one, we have an ill-defined representation, right? <clears throat> yeah. And then we have this vague notion of strength, which is a, a, which is a comparative measure, right? I can tell when somebody is stronger as long as I'm talking about the same thing. So we don't really have anything useful in that statement. No, and I'm not picking on you. I'm just picking on the, the, right, the right. profession, right? Um, so so what, what is the intention when you're doing an activity like that? If it's something that's, that's vague and ill-defined, I don't see how that can be helpful because I need, I need a process that allows me to make an effective decision under a specific circumstances. So there has to be something that leads me in the direction where I go, that's what I need to do. Versus some vague notion of, oh, you just need to get stronger, which doesn't help me. So it's not that those activities don't have utility. It's just that the reasoning behind their application is ill-defined, right? So why would I want, why would I, okay. If you got somebody in a side plank, Zach, what are you trying to do on the, on the, with the downside support? What, what do you think you're driving home there on that side? Um, on the downside, that'd be internal rotation. Measure. Yeah. So when would you use that? trying to get IR. <laughs> yeah, it's like, 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 let's not be, let's not be over, over complex. It's like, okay, I need to drive some more IR on that side. How could I possibly do that? Hey, how about I drive internal rotation into the ground through an extremity and through a hip at the same time? Cause that's what you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. I'm promoting a shape change. I'm promoting a, a higher pressure strategy on the downside versus the upside, right? So now, now we have we, we can have a discussion that, that has some reasoning behind it versus some vague notion of core strength. Yeah, no, and I, I definitely knew coming into this that like the question was like gonna be a little bit vague, but I guess like 
Just, you start using the C word in, in the wrong population and it becomes insulting, you know? Right. Um, but I just feel like those like types of activities that are just like haphazardly thrown someone's way that comes low back pain, that's just like something that you see very often. And so I was kind of just like trying to think through like, it's persisted for so long in the field, I feel like. Um, right. And, and people are getting better, but now it's quite like, are they getting better because of that? Is it just natural history? And it's just like, so like just trying to figure out like, do these actually play a role? For Because I watched like your, you had one video about stretching. Like, all right, here's a situation where like maybe stretching actually does have some utility based off a of presentation. So right. it's kind of going off of that line of thinking for, yeah. sorry to say it again, but like for the core, general core strengthening stuff. There, there, there are no generals. There's no general, right? Everything, everything has a specific effect. We might not know what it is, and it might be affecting a number of things, but each one of those things is responding very specifically. There is no general, right? There are broad, right? So we can encompass a number of things, but general does, I mean, general doesn't really make much sense, right? But again, all these, these vague representations are not helpful to anyone. Right. And then they wonder why people are confused, right? And just because something's been around and, 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 and you know, the, the jargon laden stuff that just gets perpetuated because nobody's challenging it. They're not using, they're not using reasoning skills to go, wait a minute, what does that even mean, right? It's not helpful. But 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 do you do you see do you see what I'm saying though? It's like it's like all of those activities have utility. What you need is a better representative model so you can say, oh, under this circumstance, this would be a, a useful choice, or maybe a better choice under certain circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. And just I mean, like since starting to come on these calls, just like being able to pick and choose like these like traditional exercises that I was just throwing at someone randomly, like now actually having like a reason for them has been really helpful. Shouldn't there be a reason for everything that you do? There definitely should. <laughs> yeah, and, and and it is okay because this is part of your this is part of your evolution as a professional is that is that you start to accumulate the reasoning and then you start to apply, right? But let me let me offer you this: if you do something and you're not sure why you're doing it, but you think it's a good thing to do, pay attention, and then see. Go. Here's the response that I got from this and then make a note of that because that's how it works anyway. So let's just say we don't have a great representative model, but I'm a darn good observer. And, and I say, here's the circumstances that keep showing up. I do this activity and everybody gets better every time I do that. That's probably a good solution. You might not know why it's a good solution, right? But that, that might just take time and understanding, right? You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to do good things for people. Even like I drive a car. I have no idea other than where the gas goes. I have no idea how a car works. It's amazing to me, right? But I can use a car without having to know how it works, right? You're, you, we, we do a lot of things like that and it's acceptable as long as you're not hurting people and putting people at risk, but pay attention. That's how you shift the probabilities in your favor. That's how you start to understand how things work. And then we go back and in hindsight, we go, this might've happened, this might've happened. And then over time we get better and better and better. We start narrowing our reasoning and then our interventions become very targeted. And we can say, 
this scenario needs this type of an intervention. That's how you get better. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Awesome. Thank That's you. That's a really good question. That's probably going to make a highlight. There you go. There we go. I'm making the birthday highlight real. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And happy birthday. You're welcome. Thanks. I'm going to feed you the answer. Okay. Here you go. There's another answer for you. Here's another answer. Even though you don't know how or why it's right. Here you go, Grace. I'm going to feed you. Or is it better for you to figure out how to close that gap? Because you get all this information and you get a way to organize it in your head. Okay. So um, I'm wondering kind of related to the things that have been mentioned so far, specifically about the split squat and the knee driving out. Yeah. Related to some of my experience now, I am experiencing, well, and rightfully so, some hesitancy in coaching because I'm aware that the model to which I was coaching exercises um, is not the way I would like to see now in terms of compression and expansion with movement. Yeah. And so I am I'm wondering if it is possible to indeed overcoach a movement to get it to look a certain way, um, but you're actually not achieving the relative position that we're looking for. Um, so is it more a question of like, if you can put them in the position and they can get there to the look with some ease, you don't have to like fight them to get there, um, then that's a good sign they have relative motion. I mean, coaching aside, whether you coach them well into the position is another argument right. or another discussion. Right. Um, with the right cues, needing intent and whatever. But is it better to just not overcoach? Just like, all right, you can't get the requisite position. That's not the right exercise selection choice or positional choice for you right now. And then understand the why. If, if you're perceiving yourself as overcoaching someone, then it's probably too hard. Right? Right, if they can't do it. Well, so, so, so part of the thing that you wanna recognize as a coach is that, that you know what you want and they have no idea what you want. Yes. Right, so they don't know any, and it's not that they're, they're, they're ignorant or stupid or whatever, it's just the fact that they don't think like you do. And so they don't have the same understanding that you, that you do. Right. Right. And so, so there's, a, there's a gap, a huge gap, which means that you're going to give them a, you know, you're going to vomit up a bunch of details that are meaningless to them. Yeah. What you want to do is you want to put them in situations where they can problem solve themselves as much as possible. So, so trying to chase perfect is a bad idea. Keep them safe, but let them make safe to fail right? Experiments themselves so they can make their own error corrections. And then maybe you see one thing and you say, hey, did you sense that? And they go, no. And they go, okay, let's just do that again and let them do stuff and let them figure it out versus you trying to go, hey, do this, do this, do this, do that, do this, do this, do that, yeah. do this, do this, right? And now they've got 17 thoughts in their head and now they know nothing again. So they're back to square one. So, so the, the way that you want to do this is just to slowly move them in a direction. So have them start. You make it real simple. You, you never get more than three cues at a time. 
and you show them, if you can, you show them, you say, do this, done, be quiet. Let them do it, let them problem solve, communicate with them, ask them questions, right? What did you notice the most? And go from there. Problem solve what if they don't know what they're solving or what they're moving towards? They saw what you did and they have an understanding of what you told them. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so you're observing, you're the coach, you're, you're observing and you make a comparison between what they just did and to what you want. Mm -hmm. What's the next thing that closes that gap between what you want and what they think they should do or what they're capable of? Next thing next thing, next thing, next thing, right? The, 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 the problem that you run into as a, as a younger coach is you, you, you think you know what you want and you might be right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not taking that away from you. You think you know what you want and you wanna get everything all at once because you want, you want so desperately for your client to be successful, right? But you gotta redefine what successful is. Successful is getting better. Successful is not a perfect execution of a split squat. Right, you have to move them towards better. Yeah, that's, that's the goal. Right, okay. the goal is not the perfect split squat. The goal is: is it better than it was last time? Is this rep better than the last rep? Is this set better than the last set? Right, and better is relative to the intent of your exercise selection choice, not the execution of the movement. Yeah, eventually, eventually, as so, so here's Grace's representation of a perfect split squat. Here's what the client just did, right? First rep, first set, next set, next set, next set, next set. So eventually it's gonna be this close, right? So this is your representation. Here's what they just did. Now you gotta go, hey, you know what? We really, we gotta tighten this up, right? You're really close. We gotta tighten this up. Like you're this close, right? Now you can be very particular because they've accumulated all this understanding up to this point. They have sensations, they, they, have, they have language that they now understand, right? And so when you're there, now you gotta get tight with them. You see the difference? Yeah. Let people make mistakes. How do you learn something? Do you learn best, hang on, do you learn best by struggling a little bit like trying to hold two ideas in your head like you did on Monday, right? Or if somebody says, here, here, Grace, I'm gonna feed you the answer, okay? Here you go, there's another answer for you. Here's another answer, even though you don't know how or why it's right, here you go, Grace, I'm gonna feed you. Or is it better for you to figure out how to close that gap because you get all this information and you get a way to organize it in your head? Totally, second. Exactly, exactly. So let your clients be the same way. They're, they're in the same boat. I, I think then I'm aware that I have perpetuated um, language, culture that would uh, make my clients believe that I am there to give them that. Right, and you're not. And I'm not. So how do I begin to transition that? I've just explained that. No, you don't have to, you don't have to explain anything to them. It's, it's, in your, it's in your interaction with them. Okay. And they will just adjust over time as my interaction with them changes. Absolutely. It evolves. It, it's, it, you, you have to, ha it, this is a time-based 
thing, right? You have to give them an opportunity to change. You can't force them to do stuff, right? They have to figure it out. Your, your, your job is to guide them to change, not to make them change. Mm. You don't change anybody. Sorry, you can only change yourself. <laughs> yeah. Right? Get it? Yeah. Yeah. And you, you haven't screwed up anything, right? You're learning and evolving just like they are. Sure. Right? So you have to give yourself that opportunity too. Yeah, Grace, I was totally doing the same thing you were doing over coaching. I just kind of shut my mouth when clients look at me now. I'm just like, just keep going. You'll figure it out. <laughs> then they figure it out. One, one of the most important, one of the most important days that I ever had was, was learning to just shut up. Mm -hmm. Like li literally, because you, you see stuff and you want to go, ah! and then it's like, reel yourself back. You know, it's, it's, I'm, I have no children, but I can only imagine that it's like being a parent where you want to jump in. You want to tell your kid that you're doing it wrong. It's easier this way, but you got to let them struggle and let them figure it out because then that becomes more meaningful to them. And it's, it's more useful because there's the emotions attached to it. If I give you the answer, there is, there is no incentive for you to get excited about the answer. There's no, like so people like to talk about like how the brain works and stuff like that, even though we probably don't know how it works, but, but they talk about the reward, like the dopamine reward. Like when a client executes a, an exercise correctly for the first time and they know it and they feel it and they get this big whoosh of reward, don't take that away from them because they figured it out, right? Same thing when you're learning something new or learning something different. It's like when you struggle and struggle and struggle and then you finally figure it out, you're just like going, way to go me, right? And then you're incentivized to do that again and to keep going, right? So that's, that's where the power lies.